Welcome to part two of the 73rd episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we chat about murder. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week and to part one of Rachel Hoffman's tragic death. Forewarning, our show is often horrifying and graphic and we do use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but I have to warn you, we are going to make jokes and laugh during the podcast. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. And if you're even slightly entertained by our Southern charm, leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. If not, reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, spread the word, recommend our podcast to your friends and family, or even your enemies. Yes, your enemies. We like them. <laughs> we do? Maybe. I don't know. It depends. Anyway, how's it going, Cindy? All right. Yeah. I'm home alone for like four whole days. I don't even know what to do with myself. Say it again. I'm home alone oh. for four whole days by myself. Your Can't empty wait. nest syndrome is starting. It's starting. But, you know, you'll get, you'll be lonely, but then you'll get used to it and then it'll be great. So (laughs) yeah, I'm going to jump right in because last week I left off. I started telling you about Rachel Hoffman, Rachel Morningstar Hoffman. And last week I left off when investigator Ryan Pender loses wire contact with his confidential informant, Rachel Hoffman. She is a 2007 or she was a 2007 FSU college graduate who became a confidential informant to avoid numerous felony drug charges. Now, last week you did ask some really good questions that I didn't think of as I was doing my initial research. So you know that I went back and dug deeper. Yes. I found a heavily redacted internal affairs report on this tragic buy bust operation. So a lot of what I'm, I kind of changed my focus from where I was going to go last week to where I ended up this week. I do want to say, Yep. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and you know, we were trying to find out where one of the murderers. Yes. Like after we were talking about. Yes. How we really couldn't find where one of them. We couldn't even find one of where one of the murderers is incarcerated now. And I still don't know, but you know what? I decided I'm not focusing on them at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I gloss over them They're to me, whatever they're thugs and they're in prison. So I don't really tell you a whole lot about them. But I do know a little bit. So if you have questions, just ask me. Well, you know, I asked my friend whose husband happens to be an FDLE agent. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, and he said, maybe it's because it was a private where he's being held was a private prison as opposed to a. Yeah, that he should still show up. Right. Record. And he and I mean, and like he said, he was like, "I, I don't know. But then as his wife who I was, you know, using the third person here, you know, she, then she said that the TPD really got their asses handed to them. And, you know, later on. And as they should, because that's really the focus of, of this week. You know, like I said, last week, there are so many ways that this could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't, it did shed light on the confidential informant business and what was going on. In that particular police department, even though it's nationwide, it happens all over the place. Right. And she's just one in a very long list of confidential formats where it went bad for her. Golly. Yeah. Okay. So last week you asked if, well, we were talking and I referred to the Tallahassee police department as a vice unit. And you said something like, oh no, that's not vice or something. And I said that I only saw that referred to in one article but that is not correct. The internal affairs document refers to the unit as vice throughout the entire Mm -hmm. report, which is like 197 pages. So yeah, the TPD does have a vice unit. No, I was thinking vice was more like prostitution. Mm -hmm. It's anything like, like, yeah. Anything anything that's a vice. Like kind of undercover work, Mm -hmm. gambling. I mean, I guess because where we live, we have those units also, but we also have drug task force teams. Right. Yeah. And, so, and so do they. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking that that case 
should have been a drug task force team case. Well, the drug task force was involved as, as you know, the task force is formed from all different, you know, the TAC unit. I'll talk about a little bit more later. Okay. You asked last week, did they have a search warrant for Rachel Hoffman's residence on the night of the raid? And I said, yes. But to me, after doing a little more digging, it kind of was a little more questionable about how they came across Rachel Hoffman. Okay. Okay. Um, So let me start with that raid again, because I have a little more information on that this week. So investigator Ryan Pender, who was a vice cop for the Tallahassee Police Department, first heard Rachel Hoffman's name in 2007. He had a drug buy bus, um, a confidential informant who told Pender that he used to buy drugs from a girl named Rachel Hoffman. She sold decent quantities of pot out of her apartment. And at the time, Pender was really busy, so he really didn't follow through with that lead at all. He eventually catches up with his work a few months later, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, now I I need an arrest. So he connects with Officer Pate, um, he's like cruise cop, you know, he's in his car, he drives around, he, he gets up with his Officer Pate a few months later. And so now I'm going to just read directly from the internal affairs document. Okay. Investigator Pender was asked when and how he first became aware of Miss Rachel Hoffman. He advised that he conducted a search warrant in 2007 and obtained a confidential informant who listed her as a person who sold drugs in town. Investigator Pender said he was very busy at the time and the confidential informant hadn't spoken to Ms. Hoffman in a while, so it would have seemed odd for him to attempt contact. Ms. Hoffman came back into question after Officer Chris Pate was flagged down by a citizen about illegal drug activity occurring at Polo's on, a, on Park Apartment. According to Investigator Pender, Officer Pate did a preliminary background and discovered that the person at Polo's on Park was Ms. Hoffman. At that time, I recognized her as one of my potentials from the past and told him, hey, I was actually working a CI that said he could buy from her. And you know, I will work it for you. I will take the case. And since he did the preliminary work, I said, you can work it with me. You can assist me on it. That's what Penders told IA. So Officer Pate conducted a trash pull at Ms. Hoffman's residence and they found items associated with drug sales. So to me, it was kind of a cold call. Hey, you know, so who knows if somebody actually flagged down this cop. Maybe they're just going back and checking leads. So there's a lot of iffy things going on here. I mean, but think about it. If you live in an apartment complex and you know that, I mean, I've lived in apartment complexes where you like, you know, that those people are drug dealers and maybe it could have been a residence that was like, you know, it could have been. Yes. There's nothing on record. There's no, like, let me, I'm going to call 911. My neighbor's stealing drugs. It was officer Pate saying someone flagged him down. There's no record. So that is considered a little bit of a red flag according to investigators later. Okay. Because he didn't make any kind of official. Well, it's kind of like, they're kind of like, oh, isn't that convenient how this just popped up? But yeah, but what, giving Mr. Uh, Officer Pender the benefit of the doubt, whatever. Yeah. Now, Officer Pate, when he was interviewed, said that he was asked, was asked when he first heard of Rachel Hoffman. And he said that he had received a tip in March of 2008 about a resident at Polo's on Park who was selling a large amount of pot from her apartment. Officer Pate was given permission from a sergeant to do surveillance on the apartment. Officer Pender did a trash pull, came up with supporting evidence of drug sales by Ms. Hoffman at the apartment, which included that ledger I told you about last week. If this is any kind of apartment like that I've ever lived in, then like the trash pull, that's somebody going through the big dumpster at the end of the road. Right. Yeah. She was under surveillance, I'm guessing, for some time. So the following month, investigator Pender called Officer Pate and they request and requested his assistance with the case. They went to the apartment. They figured out that the person leasing it was Rachel Hoffman, and they developed probable cause for search warrant. So while investigator Pender is writing the search warrant, Officer Pate and other members of the squad are doing surveillance on the apartment to make sure no one comes or leaves. Mm -hmm. So they're out there 30 minutes waiting for Pender to show up with a search warrant, and she leaves her apartment. She's trying to, she's getting out of her apartment, trying to leave, and then she's approached by the police. So while they were there, they didn't let her leave. That's questionable because she wasn't under arrest and um, she was leaving, but then they were holding her, waiting for the warrant. Search warrant had not actually been issued at the time when they kind of like stopped her. 
Okay. What about when they went in our house? Okay. So when they went into the house, I guess that was all legit. So that was all legit. Okay. You did ask something of the confiscation of the drugs. And I am going to address that because you said, well, isn't there evidence or didn't they lock it up in evidence? And we're going to talk about that. Okay. Okay. So an hour later, so an hour later, investigator Pender showed back up with a search warrant. Officer Pate said, well, I don't know what he talked about with her. I wasn't actually in that room. Officer Pate was also asked if there was any indication of what level dealer Rachel Hoffman was. And he said, well, the initial information I got from people coming and going was that we knew something was going on. Obviously when we did the search warrant prior to us getting there or the vice guys getting there, she basically said that she was just a holding house for the bad guys. So she's just holding their weed and then they would give her just a little bit to sell. Hmm. To answer your question, the police did have a search warrant, which was delivered after the initial, I guess, contact with her. Right. You also they asked weren't her, expecting her to leave and they were just like, oh shit, we got to keep her here. Right. We can't let her leave. And she was forthcoming. She did tell them that she had drugs in the apartment. That was like, she didn't ask for an attorney. They didn't say, do you want to call an attorney? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the drugs that were seized. So yes, her stuff was seized, mm-hmm. but because it involved the confidential informant, it's different than like taking evidence and logging it into the evidence room. It's, it's all different. Okay. Don't really put anything in writing because it is confidential. So the protocols for evidence and whatever are a little bit different than like in a regular bust. If she had been, you're going to jail busted. Okay. So So she asked, so they took all their stuff, but she's like, look, you know, um, I agree to be a confidential informant, but if you take all my paraphernalia and all my shit and somebody comes over, it's going to seem rather suspicious. So they actually, I don't know if they actually left her with paraphernalia, but that was actually in um, one of the articles or the documents that I read. Well, that's what I was kind of thinking too. I just didn't say it. I was like, well, it, you know, they had to probably leave her with some stuff because, right. you know, I yes. mean. So the, wrong. yeah, the internal affairs report constantly refers to standard operating procedures, chain of command and paperwork procedures and vice. All right. Okay. So overall, the officers and investigators, all of them that were interviewed constantly said that vice is confidential and fluid. So operational plans have to be flexible. Also, they don't write down a whole lot of details because it's confidential. They don't want something um, lying on their desk and then the janitor come in and sweep and get information about informants. So everything is kind of, you know, spoken. You go to your chain of command. Paperwork wasn't really filled out. They were really chasing their ass after the incident here. Yes, because... I know someone that kind of did this, but they did it like on a bigger level. And like, yeah, and it was someone who, um, it was a much larger scale. And I can tell you the local police were not involved. Okay. FDLE was involved and I believe the DEA. Mm -hmm. So it was a different, local police was not involved. They were not involved at all. Okay. But if that person got pulled over or there was always something like by their name where if, because if they got pulled over, they might've been um, being watched or whatever. And so it could have been, I don't want to say like an operation, but if the local police didn't know, you know, everyone, if everyone's getting arrested, everyone goes to jail regardless, but there's always something like by that person's name saying, yeah, like don't really book this person or whatever you call so-and-so with so-and-so and they immediately show up and hand you up, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, kind of like on TV where they, you know, they all go to jail, Yeah, but like that really does happen in, in real life. And so to me, this case, knowing a little bit about that person and what they were doing, this is a much larger scale. So this, to me, Rachel's, it seems like amateur hour. And I, and I'm, and I hate to say that with like, you know, I'm not trying to disparage the police department or the police. They're just trying to do their job. But to me, people who do this all the time and a little bit higher level, people should have, might have been involved. Yes. Believe me, that is all addressed. And there are a number of reasons why they think that maybe it went as far with Rachel as it did. And I do address those just a little bit. And that's like my friend's husband who was like, oh, they got their asses handed to him. They did. They did. The buy bust operation on May 7th, 2008 was no different. I mean, you know, flexibility is the thing when you are in vice, when you're doing a, a buy bust operation. 
They did have a briefing that day. The bad guys had changed the buy location from first it was supposed to be at one of their homes and then a Walmart parking lot. And then before the end of the briefing, they had called and said, okay, we want it to take part at Boris Meadows Park. All the agencies that were involved and that were present at the briefing agreed that Pender's plan was sound. It was thorough. It was straightforward. They had no questions. It was standard operating procedure as it had always been for any other by bust operation. Now, one thing I did note that, um, that I don't note here, but that I want to note is that he really didn't talk about the confidential informant in the briefing at all. Like nobody was assigned to have eyes on her at all times. All right. So just before everything was to go down, the drug dealers contacted her and then, uh, like I said, changed it to the park, but it wasn't a huge concern for the 20 police officers involved in the operation because drug deals they change locations change all the time and cops have to be fluid with that Mm -hmm. it it gives a false sense of security to the drug dealer when they have control over the location but not only that they felt the park was a safer more strategic location for a takedown okay you know it's kind of not in a busy parking lot it's somewhere in a you know in a park yeah all right, so after the briefing, the all the officers leave to go set up and prepare for what they're doing. The personnel inside the park included two arrest teams. One comprised TAC, which is Tactical Apprehension and Control Team. They had a block vehicle who was to block the suspect's escape from the park once the arrest teams detain the suspects. There were four officers in individual vehicles who were dispatched to patrol the north and south of the park and to locate the suspects. There was another surveillance vehicle and a DEA airplane that were assigned to monitor the suspect's parents' house, as well as, you know, the area. Now, I want to point out that there's a lot of foliage in Tallahassee. Yes. At 6.28 p.m., Rachel gets a phone call from Dre Green and Danilo Bradford. They're going to Forest Meadows Park. So at 6.30, Pender had wired her up. Now, I want to point out that Pender and Pate wired Rachel. There was not a female officer involved in that, which is not standard operating procedure. So that was one of the things that they got them on. You know, where's your female officer? Oh, well, it was Lieutenant White and she was somewhere else and it wasn't a big deal, but it was. That was one of the, one of the red flags. Okay. All right. So at 630, um, Pender, Miss Hoffman, who's wearing a wire, carrying a separate recording device in her purse with, and also with $13,000 in marked bills, Officer Pate, and then also DEA agent Lou Andrus left the police station and Miss Hoffman and Pender communicated with each other on their cell phones. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to figure out like exactly where this park is in relation. It's off of North Meridian. Meridian. This park. And it's and- near, um, they named a couple. I took all, I took out all the like elementary schools that were near that, and, uh, but it's off North Meridian. Yeah. And I'm just trying, I mean, it's been so long since I lived there, Yeah, but I'm like Meridian really is the, it's a main street like it it is and it and it kind of goes like there's mcclay and mcclay's like a yes, big they like, do mention mcclay mcclay is a prep school because i remember we when i was in high school we would play them and they were like the kind of kids that you know they literally would recruit these kids from all over the country to go to school there so it's kind of it's probably up past like near Killarn. But um, it isn't a very much, like you said, there's a lot of trees and a lot of rolling hills and stuff like that in Tallahassee. So this is probably getting out there where it's not as congested. Right. It's a little bit more rural, a lot lot more green areas. So at 640, Pender pulls into a parking lot south of Forest Meadows because he's going to pull there as close to the park as he can get so that he can monitor, monitor Rachel's wire. A minute later, she calls and says that Green and Bradshaw just called her and they want her to get into their car and go with them to a new location, the Royalty Plant Nursery, which is about a mile and a half north of the park. Now, according yeah. to Pender, Rachel's like, uh-uh, I am not getting into their car. So, um, yeah, so I'm sorry to interrupt again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like they're almost a Georgia, like Meridian goes all the way, Meridian goes all the way up and into, mm-hmm. in, into Georgia. So they're not, 
yeah, they're they're on their way to like Thomasville, Cairo, and all of that. So north, they're north, obviously. All right, so they want her to get in her car, but she tells Pinder, "There's no way I'm getting in their car." Well, about that time, she turns left into the park entrance near the baseball and soccer fields, but mm-hmm. that was not the correct entrance. She was supposed to go down to the next entrance to like the tennis courts or something. So she went in to the incorrect entrance, and DEA agent Andres promptly advises the units that she made a wrong turn he continues on because he was behind her but she turns so he continues on to the correct entrance so pender immediately drives toward where she is and sees her waiting to pull out so he slows down so she can pull out mm-hmm. at 6 43 he's talking with her for 20 seconds he slows down allow her to left make a left on a north meridian so that she can go to the correct entrance and then he goes where he's supposed to go to monitor the wire. So nobody has eyes on her now. She drove north toward Forest Meadows and at 644.26, she speaks with Green for two minutes and 49 seconds. And over the wire, she said that she was pulling into the park with the tennis courts right now. Now, given that she had left Meridian Park at around 644, it's reasonable to infer that she reached the flashing yellow light at close to 645. And it was at this time that she made the remark about entering the park. However, she did not turn left and head to Forest Meadows. Instead, she drove through that yellow light and continued traveling north on North Meridian. And at 6.45, Pender's having just learned that she had not arrived at the park and that no one had eyes on her, he tries to get in touch with her. You know, she's not answering. So do you think that they maybe didn't drive this route with her? It all switched at the end, remember? Right when they were about to start, it switched. No, they did not practice it. She had no training. She had uh, verbal directions. Um, yeah, no, she had no idea where she was. She'd never been there before. I mean, it just seems like that maybe someone might have, like, did they have a heads up that this was a pop, or was this just so far out there that they were like, there's no way this girl wants all of this. This has to be a setup. I, mean, I don't know. And they talk about surveillance and counter surveillance. Like they were looking in the parking lots to see if somebody had seen the cops like they aren't really sure or if they are it wasn't in anything that I read but it's possible that someone had I don't know I don't know the answer what I do know is that agent Andrus the DEA guy had continued north on Meridian Road after he reported her wrong turn and he said he saw the suspects at the Royal Plant Nursery they were sitting in a BMW that was parked with his nose out by the road He alerted the units to this at 646 and Pender responded by notifying them that he had lost wire contact with Hoffman and had been attempting unsuccessfully to communicate with her by phone. It would have been, it would have taken Rachel about two minutes more or less to drive the distance between Forest Meadows, which she passed at 645 and the royalty plant nursery where the suspects were waiting for her. She's on the phone with Green during the time, most likely getting directions from him. And Green and Bradshaw would have seen her coming from their vantage point where they were parked. Most likely, she arrived at the nursery at around 647, where she allowed them to pull out in front of her so she could follow them. The two cars then traveled north together, but none of the cops were following them. It was very confusing what was going on. And some people said that the green, the gray BMW that Andrew saw was a, the wrong vehicle, and I never quite cleared that out. A lot of the information I have is just so confusing. Well, yeah, because if someone was watching this, the supposed buyers, then somebody should have seen them all leave. Right. The suspects led led Rachel in the opposite direction. They led her to a road, Gardner Road, which is a dead end street a mile north of the Royalty Plant Nursery. And also, by the way, outside of TPD city limits, you know, like the DEA would have had, of course, they would have been able to make their arrest anywhere, but I don't know about TPD. Not unless they had, you know, jurisdiction, right? Leon County Sheriff's Department with them. Yeah. The trip from the nursery to Gardner Road probably took about 90 seconds, but it was enough time for the cops to lose Rachel. Most likely the suspects and Hoffman got to Gardner Road at about 648. Their vehicle, a stolen silver BMW, turned left onto Gardner and Rachel followed them. It was around this time, according to Officer Pate, that things got a little frantic because Pender couldn't contact Rachel. At 648.11, Pender finally connected with her by phone. She said that she had followed the suspects from the nursery to Gardner Road and they were on the dead end street and that the deal would go down there. Pender's like, stop following suspects turn around and this is what he's saying it's not actually on the wire anywhere from what right. i can see 
He's like, don't follow them. Besides the fact that we have to have this all on tape and everything and nothing's working, it's not going to be a good arrest. And let's just, I mean, I hope that maybe he really did say that. And- I, I want to say that he did. I mean, honestly, from what I've read about him, he wasn't a bad guy. He just not thinking straight or something. Yeah. Hoffman did not, you know, she's telling him to turn, he's telling her to turn around, get out of there. She doesn't respond. And the 42 second call ended at 648.20. Apparently, while he's still on the phone with her, he radios the units that she's on Gardner Road all the way at the end and was following the suspects right now. 12 seconds later at 648.32, Penner tells the units, All right, guys, we're going to have to run on the fly now. She pulled out and followed them all the way down. To where the nursery is follow them down the back street and now she's down at the back end of that where that nursery is it's a lot of kind of rambling because this is from the wire right according to one source it was most likely that miss hoffman reached the end of gardner road which is at least a mile away at around 6 49 after her call ended with pender it's a dead end remote isolated area no one is nearby at 6 49 pender advises she's probably with them right now in the car so we need to move move the two arrest teams arrived on Gardner Road. Now, by the way, they didn't, only one of them knew where Gardner Road was. None of them knew where Gardner Road was. They're like turning down roads and they have no idea. The arrest teams arrived finally at Gardner Road at 652, which is about four and a half minutes behind Rachel and the suspects. And tragically, it was too late. So this all happened within minutes. That's crazy. So sometime between 6.50 and 6.52 p.m., Dre Green shot Rachel five times with a handgun that she was supposed to buy from them. They had discovered the wire and recording devices, and and she was killed for it. Then the killers escaped. One drove Miss Hoffman's Volvo, and the other drove the BMW. Um, there's a dirt road that provides an exit from the den end, and they used that unpaved track to make their getaway. That's what it was presumed. By the time the police got there at around 6.53, the cars, the killers, and Miss Hoffman were gone. There was evidence of foul play that surrounded them. There were spent casings. There were live shells. There was a flip-flop. Police immediately went into track down mode. First of all, where's the $13,000? Did she take the money and run? Mm-hmm. Did she meet with foul play? At 6.54, one of the suspects called his wife and said the deal went bad and the girl was dead. They were on their way to Orlando where they were found two days later. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But they were planning to rob her of the money anyway. The ecstasy was just like aspirin. It wasn't even real. Ugh. So how did this happen? According to Sarah Stillman in her article, The Throwaways, 19 law enforcement agents were tracking her every move. A Drug Enforcement Administration surveillance plane was circling overhead. 15 Tallahassee cops were involved in the sting. Three DEA agents with that plane and a Florida Highway Patrol officer. She trusted the cops and figured that the worst that could happen to her would be bruising from the takedown. She like told her friends, look, it's going to be fine. The worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get tackled when they're arresting us or I'm going to get robbed. One thing that I didn't say was that during. Why did she tell her friends? Well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> she told her friends all of this. We're going to get you know to what? I mean, and her, the. While she was in her car, she's texting her boyfriend going, I'm wired now. And he's like, please be careful. You know, I don't, I kind of like you. And oh my God, she was not a trained narcotics operative and she didn't really take the danger that she faced seriously. I mean, to her, it was a game. She joked with her friends about going undercover. Uh, She's like, you know, she would act like James Bond also, but she also wanted to put this arrest behind her. She wanted to move on with her plans for culinary school and get the hell out of Tallahassee. She wanted the deal to be over. So I think that that's why when things were starting to change, the location was changing again. She's like, I just, I don't want them to call it off. I just want to get it over with. I'm wired. The cops are going to be here. There's a helicopter. Cops are everywhere. They're going to make their arrest and I'm going to be free. she's missing they began contacting her friends and family immediately to see if she contacted any of them to see if she's hiding out in one of their homes they went to her boyfriend's house benjamin reeves he goes by ben and when they came to his house they said you know we need to come into your residence to look for miss hoffman he's like you're not coming into my residence without a search warrant and rachel's with you she trusted you where is she 
during the IA investigation, he later also did another interview and he said that he met Rachel through a mutual friend who took him over there to smoke some pot. He had only known her since January, 2008. They'd only dated for like five months. He said that he learned that she was a confidential informant after the April 17th, 2008 search warrant. So as soon as it happened, she called him. When asked what police seized during this search, he said ecstasy, Valium, and pot, and some paraphernalia. And when he was asked who else knew she was a confidential informant, he said she told a lot of people. I mean, like all my close friends, she just let people know. So she's not taking, she's not seeing the danger of it. Mr. Reeves stated that he was concerned about Rachel acting as a confidential informant because just, I was more concerned that the police weren't going to follow through with their end of the deal and let her off the hook on her charges. We didn't really think this was a possibility what happened. I thought she would get robbed and I told her that and she knew that as well. She said, even if I get robbed, the police would be right there. When asked why he thought Ms. Hoffman would be robbed, he said, I'm from Tallahassee and I've known lots of people that have been robbed for selling pots. He also stated that on the day after the buy bust operation and she was missing, officers came to his residence looking for her. He said, Ms. Hoffman is with you. And he informed the officers that they could not search his residence without a warrant. He's just being a punk. Well, I don't think he is. I mean, they're trying to cover their ass. So I don't think he's being a punk. I wouldn't let him in either. I wouldn't trust them. They're, they're in heavy cover your ass mode right now. But they're also, it doesn't sound like they're like too far removed from like trying to fucking find her. Well, they're not, but they're also thinking, they're also like saying things like, oh, she's a drug dealer in the press. I'm going to get to that. They they smear her name in the press because she's the bad guy, not them. They're they're doing control. They're trying to control the situation Mm -hmm. by victim blaming. Mm -hmm. All right. So according to the heavily redacted documents, a witness stopped to help a man that fit one of the suspects descriptions because the silver bmw was stuck in a ditch between 7 and 7 30 p.m on that day the witness didn't have tools to help him get the car out of the dirt and he became suspicious when the driver opened the car's trunk and inside was a camouflage blanket and neatly stacked clothing the witness said that the silver volvo was also there it was the kind of car hoffman drove it was idling nearby but it drove off when he stopped and then he said he watched it came back as he as he left police later learned that the bmw was stolen they did end up finding her silver 2005 volvo s40 about noon the following day they did not find her body until two days later prosecutors later said that bradshaw drove hoffman's volvo with her body in it to taylor county where he dumped her in a ditch later he cleaned the inside of her car with bleach and went with green to orlando where they bought jewelry and clothes with some of the marked money okay so is that how they knew they needed to go to orlando was because the money was marked they knew because they contacted uh, Bradshaw's wife and okay. he said, and she told them they're in Orlando. They killed her. They're in Orlando. Oh, they're okay. Yeah. Because yeah. Taylor County is Perry though, right? Taylor County is Perry. And that's where Dre Green was from. Okay. So he knew the area. Now around 2.30 AM, the day that she's uh, the next morning when she's missing, they still haven't found her. They contact her parents can you imagine that call? She's been missing since 6.49 p.m. Somebody contacts him around 2.30 a.m. and says, Rachel's missing. We need you to get to Tallahassee by morning. Get here ASAP. They don't tell her. They don't tell them that she's missing from a botched by bus operation. Mm. They don't know. They just know that she's missing. When her parents arrive at the headquarters of the TPD the next morning, they immediately grew suspicious. Her mom said, I remember noticing that they weren't taking us to the missing persons unit. Instead, it was like, come over here to narcotics. Their police chief, Dennis Jones, told them what they already knew that Rachel's missing. A victim's advocate had already let them know that she might not be found alive. He then assured them that an aggressive search was underway and said, you guys go to your daughter's apartment, wait for further updates. They still had no clue that she was a confidential informant working for them. They still did not tell them over almost 24 hours later. So Margie and Irv and her husband are waiting for word on their daughter sitting in her living room at her apartment with her scented candles and her posters of John Lennon and Johnny Depp. And they decided they're going to turn on the TV to see if they could find any news on what's going on. And to their surprise, they discover that Rachel had provided assistance during police operation the previous day. 
and that officials suspected foul play in her disappearance. Lord. Uh, that was also when they learned the two suspects' name, Dre Green, Danilo Bradshaw. They also learned that Rachel's empty Volvo had been found in Perry, Florida, parked outside a welding shop, and they learned that her phone had been found on the side of the road. That's what really scared her dad, because he's like, I got her that iPhone, I gave it to her as a gift, and you would have to pry it away from her fingers to get it. The next morning, Rachel's mom was in a Publix parking lot when she received a call that no mom should ever have to get that Rachel's body had been found 36 hours later in a roadside ditch in Taylor County. The suspects told them where her body was. Oh, so once they got them, they, they got them. They told them where, yes. So now there, I could not find any information about the arrest. Like, did they find these guys at a hotel? Did the guys show up? I don't know anything about the arrest. Not long. Mm -hmm. It could just be that I just didn't have time to look thoroughly. Well, no, because I mean, I even tried to, you know, when I was like, interested. I don't know. Like maybe they turned CI in jail. Who knows? Yeah. What, what is known is that not long after making the call to Rachel's mom that Rachel had been found, they held a press conference with Rachel's body still lying on the ground right there. So they're doing a press conference where her body is. The two suspects had been apprehended in Orlando at around 6.30 a.m. and had led police to Rachel's body. We had established protocols in place to ensure her safety, Officer David McCraney told the crowd. At some point during the investigation, she chose not to follow the instructions. She met Green and Bradshaw on her own. That meeting ultimately resulted in her in her murder. So I mean, Rachel's parents are watching this. They're watching yeah. this coverage on TV. And they were shocked and angered by what they were hearing. The police were not forthcoming to them about what was going on. And according to Sarah Stim, uh, Stillman, that this press conference marked for Irv Hoffman the beginning of what he sometimes referred to as the smearing, which was the period following her murder, during which their daughter was portrayed in police statements and front page news stories as this horrible drug dealing monster. I mean, even if she didn't, I mean, clearly she shouldn't have been telling her friends. She should have followed what the instructions that they gave her. If they told her to, you know, to not follow them. Yeah. Of course, that's absolutely what she should have done. But that does not mean that this poor girl deserved to die. And this press conference and this officer McCraney should have had a little bit, been a little bit more dignified. And yes, and and I'm this was nationwide news. Like the police chief was on one of those documentary shows, and he calls her a criminal. And the journalist is like, "You're calling a criminal." He says. That's my job as a police chief to find these criminals in our community and take them off the street to make proper arrests. I mean, she was, she was arrested. She was a drug dealer. I mean, like, and to be black and white, she was a criminal, but that doesn't mean you go in and that's just be that way. I mean, well, so everybody else was just as shocked. That's what they were saying about her. It wasn't, it was devastating to all of her childhood friends. They were painting Rachel as a low life drug dealer again, as I said, and then the guy that was interviewing that she said, well, she had like a couple baggies of pot illegal. So it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's illegal, but so I will say the Irv Hoffman and Margie and her husband, Mike disagreed. And so did a grand jury. The grand jury said letting a young immature woman get into a car by herself with $13,000 to go off and meet two convicted felons that they were, they knew were bringing at least one firearm with them was an unconscionable decision that cost Ms. Hoffman her life. Yep. Now, I do want to say that I did not find any evidence that those two were convicted felons. I did see uh, less than 20 grams and, you know, a few minor speeding tickets. I did not see anything about convicted felonies. No. I know we both tried to look in in Taylor County. Did you look them up in Leon County? I did. Yeah, those, I found little small things. Hmm. Maybe it was somewhere else along the way. We just don't know where it could be. The grand jury further said that less than 15 minutes after she drove away from the offices of the Tallahassee Police Department, she drove out of the sight of the officers who assured her they would be right on top of her watching and listening the whole time. She cried out for help as she was shot and killed and nobody was there to hear her. So that's the grand jury. They indicted the two suspects. 
but they also in a way indicted the Tallahassee police department. Mm-hmm. Those were, that was their findings. Not only are those two responsible for her death, but so too is the Tallahassee police department. Another really good article that I read called Lethal Sting, How the War on Drugs Killed a College Student by Vince Belser. He describes a little bit about what she went through. First bullet hit her in the side, knocking her forward. The second drilled through her back and into her lung and heart, but she was still alive. The shooter burst out of the car, came around to the driver's side. She raised her left hand, feebly trying to protect herself, and three more bullets tore through her wrist and a finger and drove into her head, killing her. By the I mean, time from testimony, like how does he, or just, I really don't know. It? That was just in the article. So yeah. Um, you know, that's probably some speculation or store, little storytelling on his part. By the time that police showed up, all they found were tire skid marks, bullet casings, and one of her flip-flops. Danilo and Dre, uh, Nilo and Dre had fled with her car and her corpse. Rachel's parents are furious. Oh, I imagine so. Okay. So you know how parents, when, when there's an injustice done to their child, you know, they go on a crusade. Uh, yeah. And of course they're going to, they start, you know, her dad says I was up all night. I couldn't sleep. So I started just listing things that seemed like red flags to me. And I demanded that the Tallahassee police department be held accountable for my daughter's tragic death. Mm-hmm. All in all, at the end of the internal affairs investigation, there were 21 infractions that led to the death. They say that led to the death of Rachel Hoffman. I'm not going to share all of them because because it's a lot. So I'm, I am going to just point out a couple. Okay. Um, she was in drug court and a lot. Her parents are like, that's she shouldn't have been able to be a CI candidate. She's in drug court. But later, okay. internal affairs determined that that's not a deal breaker because there's no written rule against the use of drug court CIs. So that, yeah, sure. It's a red flag, but still now no police, female police officer was present during the wire setup. That's definitely against policy. Okay, and so what does that truly matter? Whether a woman is there or not. Yeah. Like where was her, I mean, what does that have to do with her murder? What they're kind of saying is that, you know, this was kind of rogue. They didn't follow any policy. And this is just one of the things that they can get them on. Just another example of you not following the rules. Right. Like, you know, are you following policy? Well, yeah, we follow policy. Well, no, you didn't because you didn't have a female there. So it's kind of like that. You you must've done. Okay. You didn't do this. So you didn't follow policy maybe in other areas. Gotcha. Now, another policy is that it is frowned upon for a CI and a cop to date. Yes. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute. It's also frowned upon for CIs to broadcast their CI status to others. Yes. All right. So Rachel's friends all knew and the internal affairs did interview quite a few of them. I'm going to read the summary of the conversation they had with her best friend, Liza Patty. Okay. So Miss Patty stated that Rachel told her that she was a confidential informant for TPD. She said, I knew everything. I mean, everything. I knew what she was supposed to do. I knew where it was supposed to be. I knew what it was. I knew the exact location as far as off the park, off Meridian. I knew what she was supposed to buy. I knew about how much cash she had. We knew that she was going to go alone to meet two black guys. I know that the charges would never be filed for the felony if she complied, which by the way, was not a promise, but she thought it was a promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did Rachel. Yeah, because but, it's only like if it leads to a major, you know, it's not. Right. And then then the judge has to agree to that. And, you know, there's a lot more to it. It's yes. not just like, oh, it disappears. Miss Patty goes on to say, I knew she was supposed to buy between two and three ounces of Coke. I knew it was supposed to buy a handgun. It kept going back and forth. Miss Patty explained that... Miss Hoffman assured her she's going to be safe. She was like, you know, the worst that could happen is they're going to take me down and make it look like I'm not an informant. She was like, the worst they would have to do is arrest me. And when I get in the car, they're going to take handcuffs off and drive me home. Hmm. And he also stated that she was aware of another scene that Miss Hoffman worked with a TPD, which I told you about last week. Miss Patty also stated that she was supposed to film the operation so that there was proof that she did this deal. But Miss Patty went to the wrong park and Miss Hoffman's like, just never mind. She said that she got a text message on the day of the sting. She was really good at texting on her iPhone. So she was texting me and I was texting back. She was like at the station now getting wired up, like on my way, park off Meridian. She told her all about the suspects that she was supposed to set up. 
She also said that Miss Hoffman mentioned investigator Ryan Pender. She said he was a cool guy. She's like, I mean, I really wouldn't expect Rachel to say that about cops. No offense. But she said he was a cool guy. So that must mean coming from Rachel. If you're a cop, that's good. Lieutenant Smith asked a question about the relationship between Pender and Hoffman and followed it up by asking, did they hang out at all? And Miss Patty's like, not outside of the station. I know that one of the officers asked her out for a drink. But she said, no, she had a boyfriend. Patty did not know who the person was or didn't say who it was. And so there was concern that once one of the investigators had asked her out, but no one ever admitted to it. They're like, yeah, that never happened. So it was a red flag though. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of mistakes. Eventually the Tallahassee police department acknowledged those mistakes. Why was Rachel alone out there? They could have had an agent pose as her boyfriend. There were a lot of ways it could have gone differently mm-hmm. why wasn't somebody assigned to keep eyes on the ci all of these things led to changes and also 21 violations of nine separate policies at that point chief jones said i didn't think it would be so many policies not being followed he admitted that it had been wrong to pl- blame the victim and he later apologized and expressed regret good oh so i'm i mean i'm glossing over a lot of of things here but with time there there's some great information out there on the story her parents did want to fight for the rights of CIs and uh, a year later the anniversary of her murder Governor Charlie Chris signed Rachel's law which was the first comprehensive legislation on confidential informants of its kind in the nation Mm-hmm. Her parents fought for the law in an effort to protect other CIs in Florida, but they also took it on the federal level because they're still fighting to protect the rights of CIs across the country. She's not the only one murdered in the line of duty. Rachel's law does provide some protections in regard to legal counsel, training for operations, as well as safety protocols. Her parents were also awarded $2.6 million from the city of Tallahassee in a wrongful death suit as well as the formal apology. None of that brings back their daughter. They will never go to Rachel's wedding. They'll never be grandparents. Her mom says, I can't even go to synagogue anymore. Her father says that his thoughts are frequently interrupted by flashes of his daughter getting shot over and over and over. Oh, God bless him. Yeah. He told Sarah Stillman that he expected to be an active father and grandfather, but instead finds himself endlessly turning over the details of the botched CI operation. He then reads aloud from that letter that Rachel wrote him and left on his counter before she went to college. Dad, please don't worry about me. I'm a very smart, independent girl, and I do have morals and ethics. You've taught me which, which will not be left at home. Have faith, old man. I'll be just fine. Damn it. So her murderers are serving life sentences right now. One can be found, one cannot. (laughs) Right. So I'm not exactly sure where Dre Green is. So if anybody knows and you want to fill us in, I did, like I said, left out a lot of uh, juicy information, but it's all out there for anybody who wants to learn more. Well, the internet says he's at what, Blackwater in Milton, Florida? And and Blackwater Correctional Facility is what I think it... Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually my friend that I asked about, he, they actually live in that area. My friend was like trying to look it up, for, you know. Right. Yeah. And I looked it up. <laughs> One was there and the other was like maybe in Holmes County or something. Mm-hmm. They're both Which is not far from either one of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, that's it for Rachel Hoffman. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. And I had heard, you know, like when I first started listening to podcasts, you know, I, I listened to one that would like very loosely went over, you know, what happened here. And, and oh, on this same, on Rachel Hoffman, you heard a podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, but it was, um, it was one of the first ones. I don't even listen to that one anymore because it's really just kind of a, it's not, they don't go too deep. Okay. Okay. I knew that a lot of people had already done this one. I, you know, I just feel bad that I'm not giving it the, 100 percent that it deserves but then again the scope of our podcast is an hour show and just kind of giving what we can give in that time and yeah you know there's a lot of great information out there it's a sad story and i'm just really sad that she never was able to really be the full potential that she mm-hmm. could she would have been yep 
you know, but her, I don't think her life was a total loss because, you know, her parents are right. There should be protocols. You should not send anyone out Mm-mm. without proper training, or at least, you know, making sure somebody's got their eye on the, the CI at all times. I mean, that's right. just, I mean, that just makes yeah. sense. <laughs> so that's it for this week. Thank you. It's so sad. It, it truly is. But like you said, it's not a waste, a wasted life, you know, of, because there were some changes that came about and unfortunately at the, you know, at the loss of someone. Ryan Pender did end up losing his job over that. He was later reinstated. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where he is now, but reading his interview with IA, he really liked her. You know, he's like, she's a smart girl. She's intelligent. You know, she's very earthy. He wasn't blaming her. He was saying, you know, like she was, she knew what she was doing. She really wanted to do this. And I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't bad mouthing her at all. I'm sure there was some guilt there too. Absolutely. Because honestly, he sh- when, as soon as he found out that she, this is what I forgot to tell you. Remember I told you last week that she tried to set up her former drug dealer and then he's like, you're trying to set me up. And then they had a beer and he agreed to work with her. Yeah. 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 Well, we had talked about how she agreed to pay his utility bill. And that was another huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, her parents are like, how are you letting, you know, all of these things are going past. You don't have control of this anymore. Rachel's leading the investigation. Yeah. She's taking the lead. She's calling the drug dealer. She's, she's trying to move things forward. And, you know, he wasn't, he lost his perspective there, I guess, by not slowing her down or whatever. Yeah. Because he's the professional. He's the one. Right. Ultimately, he was the one in charge of the whole. And he, you know, took responsibility, I think. Mm. But no less tragic. Oh, yeah. It's horrifying. Well, Lee. Well, thank you so much for telling us this. Um, I know that we have talked about it before, and I'm glad you finally did it. Thanks. So now I have to find it. When when I get to my Tallahassee capital, I got to find me a good one. Oh, I'm sure there are all kinds. You could do the lawyer. Or you could do the one. Yes, that's the one I was thinking about doing. Was okay, the lawyer. so there's the one with a lawyer, and there's another one with a doctor. I think it was a podiatrist, and that, yeah. Well, the lawyer one is really good because I actually know someone who ha- that had him as a professor. Okay, all right. Well, yeah. I okay. There you go. Thank you for joining us this week. We appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating along with a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information and links to our Facebook and Instagram pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash itwasn'tmepod. Thanks again, guys. And remember... It wasn't me.